Hey guys, um, I almost didn't think I was going to be able to get on tonight, but I made it. Um, tired, so hopefully I don't sound ridiculous, and I have crazy hair, but you know what? We're doing this, okay? Uh, so we are to Revelation chapter 17. I want to make sure I didn't skip any. All of a sudden, I'm like, did I skip any chapters? Revelation chapter 17. Let me make sure, actually. Ah, uh, yeah, we stopped at the wrath and Armageddon and all of that stuff. Okay, so we're, we've got the bowls of wrath that have been poured out. And now we're going into the behind the scenes, because if you look at verse 17, where it says the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a mighty shout came from the throne of the temple saying it is finished. Then the thunder crashed and rolled and lightning flashed and a great earthquake struck the worst people were placed on the earth. And then it says the great city of Babylon split into three sections and the cities of many nations fell into heaps of rubble. So God remembered all of Babylon's sins, and he made her drink the cup that was filled with the wine of his fierce wrath. Okay, so um, that is the, the final, the seventh bowl. Now we're getting into the details, right? We're going into the behind the scenes. This is a pattern we have seen throughout our study of Revelation. And when you approach Revelation in this way, it actually helps you understand it a lot better. Because if you try to approach Revelation in a chronological order, which it is dominantly in a chronological order, but if you don't understand what are the the that the behind the scenes or the interludes are in between each of the heavenly actions. If you don't know that, or if you don't understand that, it can be very confusing. So you notice with the trumpets, there were then the interlude or the behind the scenes, the, or I mean, I'm sorry, the scrolls. Then you had the interlude, then you had the trumpets and then the interlude. And now we've had the bowls and now we're having the interlude. So we're going to see what is happening uh, on earth. So in Revelation, excuse me, 17 verses 1 through 2 in the New Living Translation, it says, One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So uh, it says, who rules over many waters. So uh, I'm looking at my notes here. We've discussed how waters, the sea, represent humanity or the mass of humanity. If you look at, and it can also relate to nations, if you look at the fact that there's been seven nations, or there will be a completion of seven nations that are the seven heads of the dragon, and these are nations that began with Egypt, and they just went on down the line to the final uh, coalition of nations, and then we know an eighth 
king and nation will come up and that will be the uh, final antichrist nation. So it'll be like a curveball that comes out of nowhere and he'll subdue three of the ten. But the the seas, the humanity, the nations um, are often, uh, you know, represented by water. So here you have Babylon or the harlot, the great prostitute, who has ruled over many waters, or you could say has ruled over many nations, right? So the system of Babylon that this is referring to actually started with Nimrod. And we then had, because uh, Nimrod, he uh, started Babylon and he also started uh, Nineveh or Assyria. And we've had seven world powers, like I was saying with the seven heads of the dragon. We've had Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, uh, Greek under Alexander the Great. Then we had uh, the Roman and then we'll have, again, that final kingdom of the Ten Nation Coalition. So these are the toes, the ten toes in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So when you start thinking nations and how God views nations and their rulers as one, then you all of a sudden it starts falling into place. <laughs> and um, so you've got the ten uh, nations that will have a coalition that are represented by the ten toes and the feet of that final kingdom. Now, there have been other uh, superpowers. Of course, we have um, America as a superpower. Of course, they're trying to run that as fast as possible, current administration. Then we've had uh, Germany with Hitler. Um, and he's not been listed. Germany was not listed as one of those nations. However, it was definitely an antichrist uh, nation under Hitler's rule because what makes it antichrist is it's against the anointed one and it's against his people. And um, so Hitler was definitely an example of um, an antichrist kingdom as well. Uh, but these are superpowers that have um, come up and then fallen throughout history and uh, not all of them, of course, are going to be on the list who have mistreated the Jews and Christians, just the superpowers. So this passage is telling us that the kings of the world that worshipped her committed adultery because God considers the nations his. He's the one that made humankind. He's the one that actually made the nations. And those who drank of her wine of immorality are going to share in the judgment. Okay, so in verse 3, so the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness, and there I saw a woman on a scarlet beast that had seven heads, so here we are again, ten horns, and blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she had a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus, and I stared at her in complete amazement. I mean, can you imagine seeing this? I mean, it was probably crazy, right? So the scarlet, the woman on the, the scarlet beast, which we saw the beast... Uh, introduced in 
And all of these are on our podcast, uh, Destination Church podcast. But we saw, hang on, I think it was chapter 12 or 13. Yeah, chapter 13, verse 1. And then the angel tells us what the the beast with the seven heads and all that is. Okay, so here the woman is riding the nations. And she wore purple and scarlet and jewelry, which, which represents wealth. So it's the wealth of the nations. And the mother of all prostitutes and obscenities is on her head. Now the word great in the Greek is mega and the word prostitute is porne. This word means to sell. Another definition is a woman who practices sexual immorality as a profession. And so in God's mind, the rulers of the world committed illicit sex with her for money, power, and glory that only belongs to the Lord. The same temptations that corrupted Lucifer. The people that belong to this world, those that weren't born again, they become drunk on the wine of her immorality. So you see that not only is there a, a, a false system of worship, because Babylon, when you look at Antichrist nations, there's always a worship and an immorality and sexual nature to them, uh, but especially the immorality and the debauchery, which it's crazy what we're seeing in our country. But with uh, the worship part, there's always a demand to worship the ruler. And that was with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, uh, Alexander the Great died really young. He might have ended up demanding it as well. Um, the one nation that we see that didn't was actually um, the Medo-Persian one. And that they uh, allowed the Jews to go back and, and set up their temple and worship uh, their God. Uh, but there was still this desire for rule and this desire to be worshipped in all of these kingdoms. So it's a very interesting dynamic. And then the idea of being drunk, if you think about someone who is drunk, they don't think clearly. They stagger around and they sway. Okay? So that means they just go with whatever the flow is. They just stagger into whatever is the thing in the moment. So the people are acting as if they're drunk. Okay, so the wilderness, now he takes them into the wilderness to show him the great harlot sitting on the, the, the dragon with the seven heads. Wilderness means desolate, deserted, lonely, waste, and barren. It can sometimes be used of a woman who is destitute of a husband. Thought that was interesting. In this uninhabitable and desolate place, John sees this woman and the word sitting, she's sitting on this dragon. Uh, it's and the word rules over the the um the waters or the hang on. Um good grief. I left my placer. Okay where it says that she rules over many waters. So sitting and rules are the same word. So the source of her dominion, her rule is the scarlet beast. So whatever nation, antichrist nation is in power, that is the source of her rule, okay? 
Now, scarlet is fiery red, and beast is therion, and it means a wild beast and denotes particularly a venomous creature, creature and is applied to a viper. So listen to this more detailed description from the Complete Word Study uh, Dictionary New Testament. It's Zodiades, one of my favorite resources. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic, where sacrifices of beasts are mentioned, they are never mentioned as theria, which is our word, but as zoa, because of the wild and bestial element that is brought out in Therion. Throughout the New Testament, however, both Zoan and Therion are rendered by the word beast, yet the animals represented by these two words are far removed from each other. The Zoa, or, or living creatures, stand before the throne, and in them dwells the fullness of all creaturely life as it gives praise and glory to God. They constitute a part of the heavenly uh, symbolism, but the Theria, the first and second beasts which rise up, one from the bottomless pit, the other from the sea, that make war upon the two witnesses and the other opening his mouth in uh, blasphemies, form part of the hellish symbolism. Therefore, Therion is predominantly used of lower animal life and can never be the name applied to glorious creatures in the very court and presence of heaven. Consequently, in scripture, Zoa should always be rendered as living creatures and Theria as beasts. So again, we've seen the beast. We've discussed what that represents. Um, Babylon, the great horror, is a world system set up and developed by the enemy that seeks to dominate the glory of nations, their economy, their philosophy, their society, etc. for his purposes and destroying God's uh, influence in the earth and his people, his principles, because he wants the worship from the humans. So she's full of wealth. She's got lots of riches. She has this golden goblet full of detestable and abhorrent things and defiling immorality, which is lewdness, sexual sin, etc. She's drunk on the martyrs of Christ. And this means that the world system, the Babylonian system, will continue to persecute and kill people that believe in God. And uh, so she's drunk on their blood. And that's because we refuse to worship her. We refuse to bow down to her. And she's openly and actively hostile. So John is seeing this behind-the-scenes force that has influenced nations throughout history, which, by the way, Nimrod is the one that was behind the Tower of Babel. And in fact, uh, his name means mighty uh, hunter, but that is actually the idea is not that he goes and hunts animals. The idea is that he was the first world ruler who was not content with his own nation. He wanted to take over the world, and he was a mighty warrior, and he always had his fist in God's face. So he was very rebellious and refused to do what God said, uh, which was to scatter across the earth and multiply. Instead, he decided to form a coalition and build a tower, which Nebuchadnezzar later finished. Uh, so he's seeing this, this force that started with Nimrod that has gone throughout the centuries. He's also seeing the prostitute that enticed even his own people at times to betray God with idolatry. I'm not going to turn here, but in Zechariah 5, 5 through 11, it says, Then the angel who was talking with me came forward and said, Look up and see what's coming. What is it? I asked. He replied, It is a basket for measuring grain, which is 
a, a symbolism of the marketplace. And it's filled with the sins of everyone throughout the land. Then the lead, a heavy lead cover was lifted off the basket and there was a woman sitting inside of it. The angel said, the woman's name is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and closed the heavy lid again. Then I looked up and saw two women flying toward us, gliding on the wind. They had wings like a stork and they picked up the basket and flew into the sky. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel. He said to the land of Babylonia, where they will build a temple for the basket. And when the temple is ready, they will sit the basket there on its pedestal. So I believe that is referring to the great harlot that we're seeing here in Revelation. Wickedness was in the land of Israel, and these two female, female divine agents carry her away from the land of Israel into Babylon, where a temple was prepared for her and where she would be worshipped. So the context of this scene is that idolatry is being removed because the exiles are returning to the land. That's the context. And uh, wickedness is going back to Babylon. So if you study the history of the Pharisees, they actually formed when they were in Babylon as a sect of Jews who wanted to keep pure from any idolatry so that they were never exiled again. Unfortunately, they became so religious and legalistic that they actually persecuted the word made flesh, Jesus, and they were corrupted by the world system again. It wasn't, I would say, pagan idolatry that time. It was actually in the name of religion. Okay, so then let's look at verses 7 through 8. Why are you amazed, the angel asked. I tell you, the mystery of this woman in the, of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive but isn't now, and yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names are not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of the beast who has died. Okay, so this is a clear reference to what we studied already in Revelation 13, 1 through 4. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. The beast looked like a leopard but had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. Sound familiar? Daniel talked about these nations. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. I saw one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshiped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshiped the beast, who is as great as the beast, as great as the beast and who is able to fight him. So as I told you, I believe that the evidence is clear. We're talking about nations. The one nation other than Israel that we can say was dead and is going to come back is the Roman Empire. Daniel made that very, very clear. And uh, he uh, um, talked about the Antichrist who is of the people for, uh, uh, well, let's just look at it that way. I don't, you know, butcher the entire, <laughs> the entire thing. Okay, so in Daniel, and I believe it's chapter 9. It says... Uh, 
After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, which, by the way, was um, a capital punishment is the word there. So that's interesting. Appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Now, that is Rome. Okay? The end will come with a flood, and war and its miseries are decreed uh, from that time to the very end. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, but after this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings, and as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Now, let me read this to you in um, the New King James. If I can find the New King James. Because I like how it phrases it a little bit different so that you can understand um, a little bit better of what's being said. Okay. So in this same verse, it says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know that Rome destroyed the city and the sanctuary. So the Antichrist is coming from that people. And the Roman Empire was made up of the East and the West. The East was the Islamic part. The West was the um, Western, Westernized part which, of which Europe, etc., cetera, uh, is. So it could be either way. It could be an Islamic ruler or it could be an entire Roman Empire. But Rome is the only one that appeared to die. And I believe this is saying it's going to be resurrected. And it's going to marvel. The nations are going to marvel that the Roman Empire has been resurrected. And the Roman Empire was one of the best examples of an Antichrist rule. You have to worship the Caesar, all of that stuff. Okay, uh, let's see here. So we have the beast, the dragon, the woman. They all have names that blaspheme God. This, by the way, was a practice of divine titles appropriated by an emperor or a state civil religion. And Roman prostitutes wore a label with their names on the forehead. Pretty crazy, huh? I'm going to have to highlight that. Okay. So, um, Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible talks about the bottomless pit. Phrase used in the Bible to denote, to denote the abode of the dead and of demonic forces. The Hebrew word, literally the deep, is translated abyss in many versions of the Bible. In the ancient world, the concept referred to anything so deep as to be unfathomable, for example, wells or fountains. It is used in that way in the Old Testament to describe the primeval sea or the ocean depths. In Near Eastern cultures, the term was to, used to signify the inverse of the great vault of heaven. Hence, it came to be used metaphorically for the grave and is synonymous with Sheol, which is a Hebrew word for Hades, which is Greek for hell. In intertestamental times, it could be used for the abode of evil spirits. In the New Testament, the term is used both in both of these metaphorical ways. The demons pleaded not to be flung into the abyss, which many connect with later references to a prison, which is in 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6. 
Recent studies like the passages above conclude that the abyss is, is probably not meant to be synonymous with Hades. More likely, it refers to the confinement of evil spirits to their particular sphere of existence. Romans 10.7, on the other hand, use the term for the grave, so it could be uh, a reference to Hades. The major use of the term, wow, my screen just went yellow, comes in the Apocalypse, uh, the New Testament book of Revelation. There the bottomless pit is the abode of scorpion-like locusts of the prince of the underworld named Abaddon or Destruction and of the beast or the Antichrist. It is also the place where Satan is confined for a thousand years. Several characteristics should be noted in the study of the bottomless pit concept in Revelation. First, it is under the absolute control of God. The angel was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit to unlock it. The beast is to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Satan is seized, bound, thrown, and shut and locked in it. And then second, from the beginning, it's meant for eternal destruction. After it's opened, from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. Although the bottomless pit is not the place of torment, which is the lake of fire, it will be replaced by eternal punishment after the end. Finally, it's the reverse image of heaven, and from it, wickedness gushes forth. This is in keeping with the metaphor and the picture throughout Revelation in which the dragon and the beast attempt to duplicate the power and glory reserved for God alone. Just as heaven is the source of all that is worth, worthwhile, the bottomless pit is the source of all that is evil. Now, Zodiades defines the bottomless pit as an abyss, an extremely deep place, occurs only twice outside the book of Revelation in Romans 10, 7, referring to the abode of the dead, and Luke 8, 31, referring to the prison destined for evil spirits. Zodiades goes on to say it is a prison in which evil powers are confined and out of which they can at times be let loose. It is not the lake of fire, nor is Satan regarded as being cast into this prison forever, just for 1,000 years. It's also the underworld. Okay? So those who belong to this world and who are not born again are going to be amazed at the appearance of this resurrected beast. And we see that this lady, um, you know, she's writing all the past nations. But something very interesting happens when she's destroyed, uh, which um, we'll get into. But let's look at verses 9 through 10. This calls to mind with under, uh, with understand, calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns. The seventh is yet to come. Okay, so if we go back to our list, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece have fallen. They're no longer superpowers, right? The sixth at the time of John was Rome. And Rome was known for its seven hills. So that's why he has that in there. The seventh is to come, right? So we know that the seventh is a coalition of the ten nations. Okay. Um, let's see here. Notice that the woman, Babylon the Great, is ruling from the seven hills, which again is Rome. Uh, now, 
verse 11 says through 14, the scarlet beast that was, but is no longer is the eighth king. Now this is important. The seventh kingdom that is to come is not the resurrected Roman empire. Okay. The eighth is the resurrected Roman empire. All right. So that's very important. The seventh is the 10 coalition of nations. The eighth is the antichrist from the people of the ancient Roman empire. And he comes in and subdues three of the 10 nations he threatens the other seven with the same uh, warfare. So they enter into an allegiance with him and he becomes the final world ruler and his nation, the final world power. So you may want to write that the seventh is the coalition of 10. The eighth is the Antichrist and the resurrected Roman Empire. Okay. It's just, it makes it so easy if we start breaking it down uh, in this way. Okay, so we got the ten toes, blah, blah. Now, these nations, along with the final, are going to war against the Lamb. Let's look at verse 15. Oh, wait, I didn't finish. Okay, so the ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power, they will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They will all agree to give them their power and authority, and together they will go to war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will defeat them because he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Okay, then verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people from every nation and language. The scarlet beast and his ten horns, horns will hate the prostitute. Uh-oh, we got some trouble brewing. Okay, so let me read that again. The scarlet beast upon which the harlot is riding and the eighth nation or the Antichrist um, all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan to carry out his purposes. They will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast, so the words of God will be fulfilled. And the woman you saw in your vision repre represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. This is very interesting. Babylon, the harlot is destroyed by the final kings and the eighth uh, world uh, power. Isn't that fascinating? You would think that they would want to continue Babylon because it's the economic system. And you would think that they would want to do that, but they hate her. And I suspect because they're only going to allow the Antichrist and his eighth nation or kingdom to be worshipped. And so he's not going to share being worshipped. Remember, Paul told us that he will go into the temple and declare himself as God. So you can't have two gods. And the harlot has enjoyed, oh, good grief. If y'all see the balloons, I don't know what. My phone, watch this. Okay, confetti. And then let's see, fireworks. 
and rainstorm. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so they're going to hate her because he's not going to share worship, right? And then also we um, see again that Rome is a city. All right. Very interesting. Um, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know that this is the um, final Antichrist ruler. He will make a treaty with Israel for one week or one year, or I mean seven years, which we need to watch for that because whatever ruler makes a treaty with Israel, whoever succeeds, we probably need to start, you know, getting ready. Um, and then in the middle of the week, he's going to break the treaty. Then he will set up the abomination of desolation, which I went into great detail in our Daniel Company series, which is also in our podcast about Antiochus Epiphanes. He uh, committed the first abomination of desolation by putting an altar to Zeus and slaughtering a pig in the most holy place of the temple. So we know that at some point there is going to be some type of worship uh, set up for the Antichrist, and it wouldn't surprise me if some something unclean occurs as well, which also makes me tend to believe there is probably going to be a third temple, like a physical temple, but I'm also open to the idea that we as the people of God are the temple. So we'll see how that plays up, but he's going to set up the abomination of desolation, and then the only people, like we know, who destroyed the city uh, and uh crucify the Messiah, that was uh, the Roman Empire. So they will gain uh, worldwide domination once again, or at least that system of government combined with emperor worship is what will be uh, resurrected as well. So anyway, I hope this um, uh, was helpful for you. And next week, we're going to dive into the fall of Babylon, uh, chapter 18. It's a very interesting chapter. And I think you will enjoy it. And I really hope this is helping um, this series. I'm trying to be as clear as possible and break it down as simple as possible because it's actually not hard once you see the patterns and once you understand the symbolism, especially with the nations. Okay, so uh, I guess that's it. I'm going to relax and enjoy the rest of my evening. I hope you guys do as well. And don't forget to um, watch the Constitution training I've been doing every couple weeks. I've got two. Uh, they're phenomenal, if I do say so myself. And again, very simple. You'll understand that our Constitution actually started, or our Declaration of Independence, actually started 11 in 1100 uh, AD. May have been around 1080 or 1020. So we have many, many years uh, before we got to our Declaration of Independence. So we go through all those documents, all those things, things that I didn't even know, um, and how our colonies became states or their own little countries, which I think Texas has been showing us um, an example of that. Uh, so anyway, some good stuff. It's uh, on the Facebook page, and we also have it at DestinationChurchClovis.com. You can watch it there as well under Urgent Education. All right, guys, have a great night.